Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the region. Today, our guests are Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Charlie Gentry, an organizer for Expo and also Unlock the Vote. Uh, today, we're gonna talk about the impact of the current COVID-19 outbreak on the incarcerated population, especially in St. Louis and in Missouri. Welcome, Maria and Charlie. How are you both doing? Hi, Kevin. I'm fine. Thanks for asking and thanks for having us. Hi, Kevin. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having us. Good, good. So I guess let's just start off with what, what is kind of the current status of the presence of the virus amongst the incarcerated population in detention centers, prisons, and jails? Uh, right now, um, it's just uh, overran. Um, our criminal justice system has already have uh, a lot of things that's wrong with it. Um, so they're overpopulated as is. Um, so with that being said, um, a lot of people are just basically sitting on top of each other. Um, there has been movement in the uh, St. Louis city and in St. Louis County, um, which we are very thankful for. Um, but we also have um, um, Department of Corrections who has not moved a person. In other states, there are people who already have this um, disease uh, and it's out there, um, it's known, and they are releasing people. Um, we have been able to get a small number um, of people released in our uh, municipalities, but we were not able to um, have people released from the Department of Corrections based on solely of COVID-19. And that's the statewide Department of Corrections? Yes. Okay. And just what, Charlie, you know, just to add on to what Charlie is saying, MDOC doesn't even, that's the Missouri Department of Corrections, they um, have not in the past and they do not have a um, proper medical. Um, they don't, as of today and yesterday, they don't have a proper, um, proper, proper procedure to ensure safety to those incarcerated. Um, and on another note, they have not been releasing people from the jails. However, they are still transferring those incarcerated to different facilities which is really dangerous at this point of time. So is that the in intake? There are still a lot of people being, being taken into the facilities or is it moving it between facilities? Moving, moving between facilities. Mm. So that even means that if, if something happens in one place, it can easily get to another facility. Uh, yes. So even those facilities aren't isolated then. Mm. Yes, so there have been several transfers and they're continuing with this pandemic going on Yes, and like you said, you can very well transfer from one place to another. Wow, wow. Do you, do you, have you heard if they're doing, taking any precautions, like taking temperatures of people coming in or anything along those lines, or, or is there just nothing right now? So right now they're saying that they are taking the guards' temperature uh, upon arrival. Um, but we, had, uh, we know, um, as you know, the news, uh, CDC, uh, the numerous of press releases is coming out that this virus can infect you for 14 days um, before it actually even solves the symptom. 
So I can come to work if I was a correction officer for almost 10 days before I would even cough or sneeze and pass this to however many people inside the institution. So when she's talking about they're not regulated or not even capable of containing it, um, I think this goes to the point of saying, well, they come in and out. The, the, the correction officers, the PMP staff, the cooks, um, these all these individuals come in and out of the institution every day. Regardless of however many safety procedures you put in place, you're still having people who are confined to an institution or institutions um, that are subject to that that has no um, six feet uh, 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 distance that they can put themselves in between you and another person. Where are they going to go? I mean, they're going to go to the chat hall, they're going to go to the library, and they're going to go to their uh, sale. Um, that's the logist of where people go. Um, they're not playing basketball. They're not doing some of those things or whatnot. When you're confined in an institution and you're just walking around basically a gate every day, regardless of whatever it, whatever activity it may be, those people are coming in and out. You're not going anywhere go with what Charlie's saying when you asked about or the staff were they being tested um what I do know is early part of March they kind of basically shut the prison down for visits and um at that point I feel like they should have started testing those guards immediately because like Charlie said there was no in and out interaction there was only inside so with that those guards were not proper they were not tested and from what I hear, they were only, they were not, their fever, their temperatures weren't even checked. They were asked a series of questions like that will relate to the virus and they were still allowed to come to work. So as of today, in many institutions, um, facilities now in the Missouri Department of Corrections, several guards have tested positive since then. And with that, again, like Charlie's saying, with the food and things like that, those, or, those people should definitely have been tested when this first kicked off, there will be to the, um, go back to the procedure or steps to avoid this from spreading. You should not be allowed to cook food in a closed-in facility like that without being tested, as well as those guards should not be allowed to come to work, potentially affecting those incarcerated when they're the only ones coming in and out. What is what is healthcare in, in a facility like this like? It, it, is it limited to begin with and now you're adding this extra stress on top of on top of that limited system yeah kevin um i've been incarcerated a few times um and that's actually the reality of it um there is times that they pass out state so every week uh but there's times that they don't have it uh, and this is normal like doing normal uh procedures and things like that we as inmates is expected to clean um, and do, you know, the, the diligence of, you know, keeping up the institutions. Uh, most of the time there's only a square person um, and they call him a square person, which is a staff member who's in charge. He oversees the, 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 the rest of us who actually uh, does the procedures or whatnot. If either it's maintenance, um, if it's uh, in the kitchen, um, if it's, uh, uh, any of those things, uh, uh, gardening, whatever it may be. If they're overseeing us, you know, those people who are, are who are doing those things, um, um, they're con 
they're bringing the virus and they're tracking the virus inadvertently or not. And so what we're asking is that just everybody is treated like people. If I'm sentenced in prison three years, like I said, I've been incarcerated before, they're not um, having the sustainable uh, uh, items that um, me, you, and Maria can get today. You know, they're limited. Their canteen supply only comes whenever they almost feel like it almost. You know, they don't have to sit to a schedule. Yeah, they're supposed to bring more toilet paper this week. Yeah, they're supposed to bring more uh, soap and things of that, like that nature this week. Uh, but due to a coronavirus, they have, may, may not have made those trips, and those people are suffering from that. So it's not just being in close proximity then, it's a, then access to just basic necessities, uh, the soap and the toilet paper. You had mentioned that uh, those that are incarcerated are responsible for doing a lot of cleaning and maintenance, then that means they would require masks and gloves. And I assume that that's hard to come by also. Yeah. So if you think about it, so the Department of Corrections disbands hand sanitizer. It's illegal <laughs> for an inmate to have hand sanitizer. And this is before the pandemic. Just imagine if that's the rule that you're upholding, right? Because they're not going to give them to them now and then say that they're going to take them away later on. They're going to stick with what they already have. Hand sanitizer is illegal to even have. So people are expected to get up and do these things. Some of them are already expected to clean the showers um, where there's a lot of mold. Like I just left Pacific um, less than two years ago. There's a lot of mold on the floor. There's a, like people had to literally come in day by day and try to do it and it still hasn't been removed. So regardless of the pandemic, they didn't have the, the proper procedures now. Yeah, they're probably going to boost it up a little bit, but they haven't. I, 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 it's really hard to believe, especially when inmates are writing us and telling us, and I'm hearing uh, from people's families that, um, you know, somebody threw up on the line and they just removed him and they didn't take the food off the line and sanitize the area and replace it. And just to um, go in with the question of medical and just what Charlie said about the sanitizer, how this was already into play. So my input on medical um, is ran by Corizon. Corizon is known to have failed the Department of Corrections on many, many levels. Uh, people will walk in alive and uh, well and leave out deceased. There are so many issues and complaints. There are many, many complaints with those um, this medical staff, negligence, um, lack of knowledge, uh, proper performing proper medical procedures. So if this was going on before the pandemic, it's awfully scary to see what's going to happen during this time. It's, it's hard for those institutions to change to begin with. And now we're, now that we're asking them to change quickly and, and it's probably close to impossible. I'm, I'm, can, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's not almost impossible. Like if you were treating people like decent human beings at first, yes, yes. It, it's not that hard. I'm not saying that I'm supposed to have the the king size bed and the in the you know and all that type of stuff. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you were treating them as human beings, decent citizens, as, as it was like if they had a decent uh, complaint and you followed up on it and you handled it accordingly. Um, if these people were, you know, getting fed more than what a kid size get fed um, every meal and things like that, it wouldn't be a big transition right now. It wouldn't be too hard. 
we'll look at the situation with the uh, when it first started. The Department of Correction should have already put into play to start making those masks. Um, I look at things a little different than a lot of people. I don't see a penny where the Department of Corrections have invested in masks. What they did is they had these workers to make these masks. These workers had to work from dusk to dawn to get these masks made at a speedily pace. And if I'm not mistaken, they're paid anywhere from $750 to $850 a month for the duty that they do at the Missouri Department of Corrections. They didn't start speeding this up until those guards started coming in there testing positive. So before then, there was no mask being made or any of that. And we, the people, had to start filing petitions and getting out here like they need masks. So that's a good transition to advocacy. Um, so what are some of the things that, that the men and women who are incarcerated can, can advocate for themselves? And, and, and what about then also those of us outside? One of the biggest things um, that we focus on is self-advocacy. When I support you, but you're advocating for yourself is a big difference than just me advocating for you because I don't know all the facts. You know, you knew that you wasn't there. I just know that you told me that you wasn't there and I feel that they should take a look at that. The biggest thing that people that is incarcerated can do right now is look for those people that are reaching out to them and build the support and capitalize and not forget that they're human. Not forget that, you know, they have a life after this. They have to live their life enduring whatever they're enduring right now. I don't know how much time that may be, but they're still human. So one thing that prison does is take that away from you because, um, and I use this example a lot, um, I could be sitting in the bathroom using the restroom. A bunch of people could be in the restroom smoking. They get out of the restroom before uh, a correction officer come in and he smells smoke. He's going to blame me. And there's nothing that I can do or say that can get out of that. In those situations, those aren't being treated like human. Out here they say, you know, you have that opportunity to fight for those, uh, for, for those rights, to stand up for those things, to face your accuser or whatnot. So the biggest thing that they can do right now is remember who they are and not get lost into, um, well, they told me I can't go to child because I was five minutes late. No, you're a person. I don't care if you were in the bathroom. They need to make you a, a plate and let you go to eat. So the biggest thing that they can do is right now is remember who they are and reach out to people like Maria reach out to Expo, reach out to All Lives Matter, reach out to Save Our Son, all these different yes. things they can help. Yes, but the sad part to me is um, going back into that, with that dehumanizing. Um, a lot of these people that I speak with, and I'm sure Charlie, like he said, he's been there, they ripped that away from you. So you have a lot of people who have lost faith and lost hope. You have people that has been there 10, 15, 20 years with this daily dehumanizing and that's, the, that's what they're doing to these people. And so they have lost hope. So there you might even reach out to some that says, what are you going to do for me? Or how can you help me? These people, I have met so many people, like they don't care. They're never going to change. This is what it's going to be. And this is how it is. I'm like, no, there are people that are fighting for you on the outside now. But then you have to get their trust because the Department of Corrections have ripped that trust away from them, dehumanizing them. So with that being said, you know, it's a um, task, but a lot of those don't want to advocate for themselves because they feel like it's a hopeless effort. You do have some that will advocate for themselves and we try to encourage them, hey, 
them to the next person. Let them know there is help out here. There are people fighting for them. So what are, what are your then communication lines um, with those who are incarcerated? Right now, um, Maria is doing um, uh, uh, participatory defense, uh, getting the families more involved. Right now, it's very key for, we were just saying that people get out in the community, get their voices out there. Like, don't just settle for that. Yes, you might have to go to the hole and serve this time and things like that, but that's not acceptable. When they believe that it's acceptable and that they have to endure it, the Department of Corrections win. Yeah, I have to go to the hole for five months and fight it, right? But if other people are advocating for me, and what the biggest thing we need our people to understand is that, look, as soon as you get out, we understand that you have issues and things like that, but the things that you're suffering from, the same injustice that you were going through, somebody else is getting ready to go, is already going through what you're going yes. through. going to continue to go through what you're going through until it changes. You walking out and thinking that it's over is not because, and I'm a prime example of this, you know, I had got out and, and did the right thing. You know, I made a bad choice. You know, I got angry or whatnot those consequences came back to heart me because I never addressed the real issue. I was able to be locked right back up because I never got back into the issue or wasn't able to change the issue. If there was an issue right now and I serve my consequence and I get out and everything's fine, you know, I go home with my parents, I get a job and all this type of stuff. Who's to say that Charlie doesn't need a ride home from work one night um, and Maria gives me a ride home, but since we're convicted felons, the police stop us, and now we're going back to jail because we've never attacked the issue. We're going back to jail now because we never attacked the issue. We got out, said it was over, it was cool. You know, I'm cool. You know, we, we forgot about Scoopy Doo and yada yada in, in, in prison, and they're going through the same thing. And now we're going to see their face in the newspaper, conduct violation or violation for riding in the car next to a felon. We have people on our team who have life sentences and they get up and they go to work, they volunteer in the community. They give more to the community than is expected of them. Cause, they, cause the community right now don't even want them to vote. I began to advocate um, for those incarcerated about a year ago for human rights. On that alone, um, rights being violated, due process, you know, just dehumanizing these people and um, as I started to do that, I learned a whole lot of things that the Missouri Department of Corrections will do. And a lot of times, some of those don't want to advocate for themselves because they will retaliate. Um, Charlie mentioned them being in the hole five or six months. What about 10 months, 11 months, a year? Then when they get back out, depending on if they're still fighting for their rights, they might go back in for another year. Um, officers will write up fake violations and they have no one on the inside fighting for them. So these people shut down. So one of the things that, you know, I encourage them to do, like I said, you're not fighting alone. Hey, let me link up with some of your uh, loved ones or your loved one so that we can begin to write letters to the Department of Corrections, the facility, the warden. I recently just got a violation <laughs> removed where they actually just pinned this man. He got me a letter out. They had put him down in ADSEC for seven days. He was, he's uh, a COPD because he was getting out letters and complaining about this issue, they denied him a shower in his medication for seven days. So when I began to write these letters to the warden and director, 
um, it took them two responses to even reply back, but I wasn't letting up on it. So I addressed this in, this issue and you're dehumanizing him during this pandemic and he's, how are we dehumanizing? You did not, I have any blood, you did not give this man a shower. Well, I'm going to investigate that. They, they let him off the ad seg, but they never really addressed my complaint and my issue with why did this man not get a shower in his meds for seven days? You have retaliated him. They stopped his legal calls. I guess they're assuming, oh, because, now this is a facility I had never went up against, but other facilities, no, I'm not gonna just let up that easy. No, I need you to go back and I need you to address why you dehumanized him, placing him in the outset with no shower or meds for seven days. If it's not retaliation, tell me what it is, pure negligence, pure failure, pure neglect. He did call today, I missed the call. When I called back, he sent, his assistant warning to me who had particularly no idea of what this was about. So I asked him, no, please, I don't want to speak with you. I need the person that knows all about this. So let's finish this up. But there's a clear issue. So what that warden relayed to me when I started going down about this seven days with no shower, he says, oh, when you're in ADSEG, you don't get a shower for three days. So you're telling me you're getting human beings in there. You know, after one or two days, your body gets an odor. So you're letting these people stay down there for three days, and this is your policy, that they only get a shower every three days in ATSEC, but here this man didn't get one for seven? This is what I was, and that's exactly the point that I was talking about, that they don't have to be accountable. They have to have some type of accountability where it's not me governing myself. Like, if I govern myself, well, I don't have to be accountable for anything. My thing is because of my past issues with the Department of Corrections, and I know that I know how they run and how they hide and behind each other. So when I go in, I go after that facility, wherever that complaint is. I also go to the director's office. I go directly to the director of Missouri Department of Corrections and pre-site. It's like four or five people that I contact directly on each of these complaints. So yes, definitely that is where you need to go because you're holding that facility accountable not only that, you're holding the director's office accountable because they are the overseers of all of these facilities. So whoever the issue is, whether it's medical, if it's medical, you go through Corizon. I have filed complaints on them. A person fell, messed his arm up a bone sticking out. They told him, you're a man, stick it up like a man. His attorney called me everything. I jumped down on that. I had them to get that man transferred out to a hospital. His arm was dislocated in two places. He had to stand there for five days with no proper medical attention with bones sticking out of his arm. So you will you'll go through each person that is in charge of that department, whether it's medical, food, the warden, director's office, because they are the overseers. Attorney General's office too, but he's not going to do anything either. What do you tell you, the family and friends, the loved ones of, of those um, who are incarcerated? Where, where do you direct them in, in, in their energy? I would definitely, um, to begin with, check on your loved ones. One of the things we're requesting are those video visits. We have not been able to see our loved ones since the beginning of March. We, they can tell us anything. We need to be able to see what's going on with our loved ones there. So my, the first thing is to stay in contact with your loved ones. Then reach out to people like me, Charlie, different organizations that are real and they're passionate about the changes with the Department of Corrections. And then we begin to move in numbers. We begin to hold them accountable and put pressure under them to make them come out. They will not even come out to the campus, and when they do, they're not coming with the truth. So speak with your loved ones, get the truth, stand on that truth, and hold them accountable for that truth. How difficult has it been for family and friends to stay in contact with? Uh, you you mentioned that 
uh, one of the first things they did was say no more visitors and no, no more legal aid. Has, has that been an added problem since the COVID-19 has started? Well, you would normally get visits. So you can go see your loved ones on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. Okay? Um, they stopped all of that once, you know, the pandemic came about. Now, legal calls that is their little retaliation thing and i'm speaking of that because the person i told you about that i made a complaint about all of a sudden like he was had a legal call with his attorney friday he couldn't get that call out that is a violation that that's another question i sent to them friday what is your policy on a legal call he should have never he was denied a legal call and while he was in ad second he didn't get his one his call friday they're supposed to make that account um where they can get that done for a person incarcerated to speak with their attorney this is a legal call so no, I don't, I'm not sure that there's ever been an issue unless it was something like this as far as retaliation. According to the law, I know they are not supposed to deny these people that legal call. This is dependent on their freedom. They have to do better, but I, I, she just keep iterating on and we have to just focus on that is that we have to put them in a position to where they are accountable. Um, Milwaukee, uh, when they started this thing with Expo, focusing on policy and actually changing those policies and um, um, basically bomb, bombarding uh, probation and parole in those places and, and, and making themselves have a seat, they don't have them there because probation and pro parole wanted them there. They're there because they've made enough noise and we need to be able to have these people that's incarcerated and when they get out to stay focused on those things. What's a way that uh, those that are listening to this can can support and become more involved? Each organization has, and we collaborate with each other. They have websites. Um, MCU has a website. You can also um, get a hold of me or Charlie via Facebook. We have pages for Missouri Expo, um, Unlock the Vote, um, Our Lives Matter. Um, there are pages on Facebook where you can find us. Um, our email and our contact information is on there. You can email us, contact us, and we will reach back out to you. Okay, excellent. And expand a little bit more on, on the role of Expo. Um, you know, exactly all, what all does it encompass and what are some of the other issues and actions you're working on? Again, Expo was established in Milwaukee when a bunch of people that was formerly incarcerated uh, knew that they had um, the strength to actually create change. They banded together, um, they started focusing on policy, they went to their legislators, they went to probation and parole, um, they went to these people themselves. They worked through uh, wisdom, but they also went there themselves. Now it's, it, it, it's spreading nationwide. Um, everybody wants a chapter, everybody wants to uh, uh, have a seat um, as far as um, holding these people accountable, um, having the support. What we basically focus on is uh, the uh, structures. So either it's a policy, um, either it's a system, such as the criminal justice system, um, as far as Department of Corrections, or it may be uh, something um, as simple as uh, unlock the vote, which allows, which doesn't allow people who's currently on probation and parole to vote. It's a, a, a variety of areas, um, and unfortunately, um, what we have is good leaders like Maria um, and Giles who can take up the helm on um, doing certain things such as unlock the vote and Department of Corrections uh, reform. 
And Maria, tell us a little bit about Our Lives Matter. Uh, how did that develop and, and tell us what, you, what you're up to? Our Lives Matter, we got started to, um 2015. Um, like I said, my story is a little different from a lot. I had a brother that was serving time in the Missouri Department of Corrections who was brutally murdered um, June 9, 2014. Um, going back to those things of safety, security, accountability, failure, neglect, dehumanizing. Um, these are why I'm so familiar with this failed medical. This, <laughs> there's a lot I know about this medical. I'm just based on my brother's death and even dealing with what I've been dealing with. And that's how I began to advocate. In that year, I also lost my son and a brother to gun violence. So Our Lives Matter, I began this organization. We did a lot of fighting with um, St. Louis City and Louis County with gun violence. Um, after not being able to get an attorney for my brother's death that was murdered inside the Department of Corrections, I began to deal with them one-on-one -on, -one on all these issues. And that is what made me begin to advocate because I saw a broken felon system who is still, as of this day, not being accountable for things that were taking place back in 2014 when my brother was murdered. So um, basically what I'm doing is I'm um, going head to head with the Department of Corrections for these policy changes that is Justice for Larry Miller, Inmates Lives Matter. That is a campaign I began under the advocacy. Um, I focused on trying to help um, those that were wrongly convicted. There are a lot of people inside the Department of Corrections that were wrongly convicted. There are lots of issues with probation and parole. And just like this um, here, I still focus on um, the gun violence area with things. People on my team, we just did a shootout, a um, basketball shootout in March. Um, on the gun violence area where we focus the day on shooting hoops instead of shooting guns. Some of the things that I'm working on right now at this particular point, we're asking for the Missouri Department of Corrections to give these people incarcerated proper safety equipment. We're asking for video visits. We're asking for immediate release of those medically ill and elderly. And there are certain individuals that fit in this criteria where they can be released within one or two years. We're asking for immediate release for those individuals, as well as we know that the parole system has been a broken, failed one with inadequate seats. A lot of individuals were denied parole between 2015 and 2017 on that inadequate board where things like false violations and things like that held them back. So we want those cases to be investigated, which I started asking for this to end of last year. But now since we have this pandemic going on, these cases need to be investigated. And some of these people need to be brought back up in front of a fair parole hearing. Because with this pandemic, I'm afraid that a lot of people will not ever make it home for a second chance to make me up with their loved ones. They were ripped away. They went away to serve time. And death in this pandemic will have them serving a life sentence in prison where they will never make it home. So those are some of the things I'm working on now. Okay, excellent. And I think that's a good summation of what we were just talking, of, of the whole conversation we've been having, which is uh, in these confined spaces that are already um, dehumanizing, uh, an illness like this can spread rapidly. So the, the one of the biggest relief, uh, relief actions that can take place is to, to get people out um, as soon as possible. And, and you had a great list there of, of folks that the state could even concentrate on, those that are, that are close to the end of their sentences, those with health concerns already, and, and start getting those populations spread out as a starting point. So I want to thank you both for joining me today. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and I wish we could actually talk more, but thank you both 
uh, Maria Miller, the founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader of Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Charlie Gentry, an organizer of Expo and Unlock the Vote. If you want to learn more about MCU or these organizations, go to Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. If you want to participate with us, you can find details on our website and also social media outlets. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.